Welcome back to Traces, a podcast that traces the impact of technology and design within people's lives and culture. Min Zaw is currently working as a graduate researcher based at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And today, I think they have killed 20-something villagers just because they couldn't find anyone else. They, they just said, okay, these people are PDF, People's Defense Forces members. Let's kill them. And there were images of their bodies burning. It's sad. It's, it's traumatic. As a minority from the Rakhine State, he's advocated and worked with different grassroots organizations during the Rakhine conflict. He's concerned about Myanmar, continues to work with student organizations, contribute to local advocacy efforts, sanctions, and data-related efforts after the 2021 coup. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Traces. Min, how are you? Hi, Jay. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm well, currently focused on a lot of things happening in the ground and, and, and a little bit stressed about how I missed out on some of the news, even though I keep a lot of tabs on, on what's happening in Myanmar and the current political affairs. Um, with the current situation, it doesn't feel good to actually skip out or miss out on things that's happening. And uh, I feel a little guilty about it. I feel a little guilty that I'm not there with the people. No, I hear that. I hear that. I think when you're away from your country and you hear about the inner turmoil that's happening there, you almost want to be there with your people, right? And it's it's very hard when you're away and you, the only things that you can assist with is through monetary or through communication. Yeah, definitely. Um, even without the, the monetary support, just being there, you know, just the moral support means a lot to the people because that's how our country functions. It's based a lot on which side you take since before this revolution that happened. We have massive amount of interracial and communal conflicts and sectoral violence. So people really seek out for moral support on different issues and and just being there for them it really means a lot for them people are beautiful so you know it, it feels good um but yeah this is a very hard time for me i can't go back home so yeah pondering on that as well yeah man where are you currently by the way so our audience knows or, or you can't disclose that Oh, I, I can talk about it. I'm currently in Georgia. I'm doing my uh, graduate studies and, and working as a research assistant in, in Georgia Institute of Technology. I also work with some of the NGOs. And the one I could talk about is Global Movement for Myanmar Democracy. It's one of the student-led organizations that actually kept up with some of the works that need to be done in Myanmar. And we actually advocate for some of the stuff happening in the country. Uh, and we, we draft up policies and petitions. And we actually advocate for different issues right here in the United States and in different countries in, in European Union as well. And it's a very, uh, very efficient organization led by a lot of people who, who really care about Myanmar. So yeah, this is one of the current work that I'm involved in. Recently, not much have been going on in my department, which is the, the data science team. Uh, but yeah, I, I did some work with them and it's pretty great people. I want everyone to check it out. Yeah. That's awesome. I didn't catch up. What is your major again? Uh, computer science. It's a very funny story. I was supposed to either be a doctor or an engineer. My father came from a very political background. My father's whole family, they, they're very political. Yeah, he pushed me to be an IR person. He wanted me to go to either go into like surgery or political science. And I was like, nah, I'm going to go into computer science. It broke his heart probably. Oh, wow. Yeah, I did do a degree uh, IR as a minor while doing my computer science undergrad. But I let go of that because it was was a lot of workload and I can't balance between computer science and, and, and IR. So yeah. Dude, that's so fascinating. I didn't know that. Also the fact that your parent definitely wants you to be in the 
in the medical field, it's definitely an Asian thing for sure. It is. Yes, you're right, Jay. It definitely happened to you as well, didn't it? Yeah, it definitely happened to me as well. My, my parents wanted me to become a nurse or doctor as well. So I totally understand the pain, but I think it is important, you know, prioritize what you're passionate about. But also on top of that, I think you're doing awesome things that are not related politically, but for your country, which is just as important. So let's not forget about that. Thank you. Yeah. Where originally are you from in Myanmar, by the way? And like, where did you grow up? I was born in Rangoon. Both of my parents are from the Rakhine State. My mother grew up mostly in Rangoon as well. But after marrying my dad, she spent most of her life in, in Sitwe, which is the capital of Rakhine State. My parents took me took me back to Sitwe, the Rakhine State. I spent a little bit of my childhood there, came back to Rangoon. It's sort of inherent that I can speak a Rakhine language because of my mom and dad's communication. And it's also fascinating that my mom excels at the language. Like she knows every nooks and corner of the, the, the lingua of Rakhine State. She can speak local dialects pretty well. And same for me. I picked it up from the affinity that I have with my, my parents, right? And after I came back to Rangoon, I think six, seven years old, the language completely... I mean, the influence just stopped because I, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My father had to escape the country because of the political repercussions, some of the problems that he had with the government. Yeah, so it's an interesting childhood. Mostly, I didn't get to know uh, many of his works and, and how he was involved in politics until I grew up and heard stories and visited Rakhine State and saw people, saw the culture, uh, how people survive and suffer under the military uh, persecution. So yeah, you could say my identity is a little, I mean, I, I am a born and bred Rangoonite, like born in Rangoon. You could say, you could even say I'm raised in Rangoon, but a lot of cultural affinity to, to the kind state as well. And yeah, I've lived there for a while too. So yeah. That's awesome. And the fact that your father was well known and also had to run away from the country also speaks volumes because obviously, you know, based on a lot of the episodes I've done, there is a history with the military running in the country for so long. What, what are the stories that you remember of your father really pushing the political boundaries can you talk about like maybe one or two stories? Yeah, definitely. My father is what you could call a, a local bad boy <laughs> slash politician <laughs> growing up. He was, I mean, I could send you a couple of articles that he partook in elections and local offices. He ran for election. He have actually started one of the only pan archon by which I mean the party which focuses on multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition oh, wow. in Rakhine State. He started that as a young person, I think uh, around the age of 24. It's called Arkan National Development Party. It's very interesting. I, again, I, as I told you, I never knew about it until I grew up. He ran for election. His brothers ran for election. His, his brother's also, also a big advocate of Rohingya. Uh, issues as well. Uh, very well known in the, in the circle of uh, NGOs and uh, people who came and studied the Rakhine issues. His grandmother actually founded one of the villages in the Sitwe, which is called Bume, I think, which is the name of his grandmother as well. His family have a very big history on, on, on local activism. And surprisingly, they're not a racist family, which, which is, I mean, racism is a pretty popular trait among my people as well. My father is also mixed somehow. Yeah, he actually advocated for the issues uh, as, as a youth, uh, and and after he grew up, I think he had uh, history with some of the uh, some of the armed struggles. So that somehow got got him into trouble with uh, the the government. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And then I think one thing that people don't realize is, uh, and you you touched upon it like briefly, is the fact that there are multiple dialects, multiple cultures in Myanmar, right? And when you say mix. I don't think people know what that means when a Burmese person is mixed. Can you like, I guess, educate 
people and me on what it means to be a mixed Burmese. Oh yeah, if you look at the geographical region of how Burma is situated in, it's between Bangladesh, China, India, and some of the mountainous hilly region. You could even say a little bit of Himalayas, right? So there are different parts of people that came together and settled in, in different regions. It really is an amazing mix of people. In Rakhine State, you could see people who are the majority Rakhine Arkanese, uh, the Rakhine people who are Tibetan Mongoloid. You could see people who are, are Rohingya Yes, Khmer people, especially my mother, is a Khmer Muslim. She is an indigenous Khmer Muslim. So that means the Khmer people have settled in Rakhine State around, I think, 1700s. They are of Persian descent. These people have their their own culture, their own distinct history, and they have served the, the Rakhine kings for decades before the Burmese invasions. And my father is of the Yakai majority, and he, he is mixed with Gama and, and maybe even Rohingya. Very impressive feed. We also have Daina, Mu, and Chakma, which also have some of the cultural ambiguity with Bangladesh. We have Chakma, Barua, uh, mostly in, in, in the border, border region, mostly on the side of, the, of Bangladesh right now. So a lot of different culture is a hot soup of, um, of civilization coming together. And as one of the historians, I think Daniel and, and Moshe Yeager even have described a frontier of the civilization back then, before the, again, before the Burmese invasion, there was a booming Islamic culture in the region. The intercommunal harmony was amazing. It was never seen before, even in the mainland Burma. So Yakai State, the Arkan State, it's a set example of how Myanmar or Burma is supposed to be. It's where multicultural culturalism existed even before the colonial time. So amazing, amazing how uh, things work. And if you come to the mainland part where Burmese people live, the the, the flat plains, especially Rangoon, etc., you'll see a lot of Kama people. Uh, they're the majority in the country as well. If you look at the whole statistic, they're known for a lot of bad stuff. Uh, but yeah, if you go to the hilly regions, which is a Kachin state, you'll see Kachin people. They also have their own different dialects, different ethnic groups. So yeah, it's a very complicated and, and very beautiful country in terms of diversity and multiculturalism. The communal interdependence, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the fascinating thing about Rakhine State is, I mean, it is probably one of the most underdeveloped parts of Myanmar. It's just fascinating for me to like see you go there and then come back to Rangoon, but also have that awareness of the reality of that part of the country. Because I, I don't think a lot of Burmese, the ones I know, they're, I think they're mostly from Yangon. I don't think a lot of them like ever traveled outside of Yangon. Uh, what was that like for you actually when you went back and forth and having that context of like the reality of a underdeveloped area in Myanmar and then going back to maybe Rangoon, like what was that like for you? That's a very good question. Uh, first time I went to Sitwe, I was, I was very young, I think it was 20, 2010, 2011. That was the time when I could remember probably, you know, when I went when I went and visited all my relatives. I was very happy as a kid and that later followed by communal violence. But but let me talk a bit about the memory. It was, when I first got there, it was, it was big plains, right? It was a lot of feel. It was something that I could enjoy as a person who grew up in uh, I mean who got to play around in Rangoon and you know got got to play with friends I never had access to those those fields those big open spaces I was very happy but there was this underlying looming sadness you know um, whenever I talk to a Rohingya person or, or a person of Muslim background it, it's always the, the conversation always goes like this, and I will always end up telling them how happy I am to visit the Arkan State and how how um, how beautiful it is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I was just trying to make conversations as a kid, 
and the the Muslim villagers or or people that I uh, I meet would end up always telling me that oh you haven't you haven't been here long enough you know to remember it and it always struck me because uh, at that time we had a lot of sectarian violence before before uh, before that too but uh, as a kid, it never struck to me that that the problem was that serious. There was this persecution going on that was very silent, very hidden. People always feel burdened whenever they go around. I never knew that it, it requires a Muslim villager to apply for a form to travel to Rangoon just to get medical attention that he needs. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, and it never struck me that it requires a marriage license for them, which takes two to three years of bureaucracy. And, and and this could be completely anecdotal as well, but some of those are confirmed in the, the Kofi Annan um, report of the Rakhine Commission that Dosu government have formed. It's amazing how the, some of these people uh, never uh, never even seen a birth certificate before. And, and as a person who's supposed to be in touch with these issues, I, I felt very ashamed, right? Because it's my state, it's supposed to know about those things and even as a kid I, I knew I was very ashamed of, of myself because I'm living a very privileged life so you know, we'll get to that later as well um, in Rangoon and, and these people they're suffering right I mean I'm supposed to be sharing the pain try to act as a cohort these these kind of persecution but that those moments you know those conversations with them strike me uh, every word it's amazing how these people survive this kind of persecution on on state level and administrative level I, I have some of those stories too i mean i could share about my family and stuff but it will never be enough right if we could never summarize the grief and the pain that these people have went through so yeah that, that was the first time that that was uh, made known to me and, and it somehow yeah it somehow came to my mind all, all the other times after i went back i was like okay you know this is gonna be normal for me uh i know what's happening now so the only thing i could do is bring awareness um um, and I have a lot of stories about that as well. I, how I've received hate because because um, I talk about that uh, even among my Burmese uh, uh, Burmese brothers and sisters as well at that time uh, because the issue was very hot. And and whenever I bring up the issue of Rohingya uh, Rohingya crisis in Rakhine State, it's almost as, as if like I I'm being cannibalistic. It's like I, I've eaten personal life or something. <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely uh, that was definitely funny for me. <clears throat> because for me, when you, especially when you come back to Rangoon, right? Yeah, the, yeah. You'd bring it up, and people <laughs> yeah. would be pissed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and these were international school kids. These were the creme de la creme of the Burmese society. They were people educated on basic human rights, uh, you could say. And when I even and I say this because even when I studied abroad, these things followed. Right, whenever I bring that up in classrooms in American in an American university, uh, the Burmese. Uh, brothers and sisters that I fraternized with would somehow see these as a very vile and, and smear campaign of, of the country. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had those, those moments as well. Yeah, they're de- definitely, definitely memorable and sometimes funny, sometimes very sad um, when it comes to the issue of Rohingya people. Yes. In, you know, it, it's weird because I know the culture, the the underlying culture of Burmese where if a celebrity doesn't talk enough about it, I, I, I forget the, the term, the label that if this person doesn't speak out what's happening in Myanmar, there's a term that you call these people, right? Currently, uh, I think Delan. Yeah, currently. Yeah. What's what's the term? Delan. What does that mean again? Delan. It's like, um, it's like you're siding with the uh, 
siding of the Tamado or you're not, I mean, you're not being fully cooperative. I, I don't know the specific right. meaning, but yeah, it's just, it, it has a negative right. stigma to it. Yes. Right. So there's that. And then the fact that you talk about it a lot and they come down on you still, <laughs> it seems like there's this weird, um, I guess, what's the word? Uh, hypocriticalness about how they treat, you know, what they want to hear, right? I yes. think that's the issue. Yes. Um, the fact that if a celebrity doesn't talk enough about it, that person's a, a delut. Is that, that, is, is that yes. what is it? Yeah, a delut. Delut. Yeah. And then what do you call a person that just keeps bringing up stuff like you, you do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was uh, I was the delut of, of 2016, probably. <laughs> it was an earlier version of delut. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, this, I mean, even the people who have worked in the humanitarian field, um, uh, they, they couldn't come out and fully support the idea of how these, these people they deserve a full inherent human rights. The, this idea was so strange to, to everyone, right? And so that motivated me a lot to speak about it as well. So, so my, my, my current ongoing thing is that if someone tells me not to speak about something, I definitely do that. I speak about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I totally feel that. And then, on, I mean, okay, just to educate people again, and you, you are the expert. I am just a person that, uh, you know, knows certain things. Um, you know, the internet did open up around like 2010, 2011 in Myanmar, yes. but coinciding with that around like 2012, the Rakhine, Rakhine state riots also happened right between the Rohingya Muslims and then the ethnic Rakhineese. Um, not a lot of people know about this, uh, you know, aside from the Rohingya being, you know, pretty much taken away from their land, pushed out pretty much. And they were also murdered, uh, you know, in cold blood because of being ostracized by military and, and different groups. Now, I, I know that because I read the news. What is your perspective on, on all of this? Because I think this is more like shining the light and getting clarification on what, what actually went down. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I would say this is a reckoning moment. Like uh, you talk about the internet opening opening up after the insane government came to power. There were several uh, con consequential riots that happened in Meitila. Meitila, I'm not sure if you're aware of it. It's middle Burma. Mm. Uh, happened in Meitila, Oka, and Lasho, Gambalu, and Thandwe. It all started with this this rumor about a Muslim person, a person of Muslim background, or or, or the K word, which is a person a person of Kala background, uh, hurting or somehow somehow doing bad things, Buddhist person, and then there follow waves of of repercussion from from these mob gangsters, you know, uh, going around the city, killing people, burning them down. So uh, and 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 it's funny because the global in, on the global scale, even Facebook had to update the uh, uh, the misinformation guideline, the policies based on the events that happened that transpired in Meitila. So uh, it's funny how these things affect uh, bigger things, right? And it's funny how social media have failed these people in, in, in Middle Perma, you know, to try to fail to stop the misinformation, the spread of mis misinformation. And internet currently open. So, so all these things, you know, the Rohingya riot, the Meitila thing, uh, everything had a really bad uh, all these causes have really bad PR image in the country. There were really, there were really good Buddhist people and people of a Burmese background who came and supported the, the Muslim, the Muslims uh, when these riots happened. But the, 
largely uh, on service level, uh, it was the anti-Muslim uh, hatred was was very uh, prominent. Uh, so so I so what I'm thinking right now is that since it's after after this coup, uh, Dosu was on stage after all, the whole uh, ICJ thing that that went on with her. These are the moments of reacting for our country, where people people of different background came a little bit uh, to light. Okay, they were like, okay. So these things happen because the military was involved, because they have this huge propaganda machine which uh, flared up uh, anti, uh, anti-Islam propaganda in Burma to systematically target the minority. So, so these things came to light, right? So this is a lot to reckon about. I mean, this could, this is also uh, something that NUG talks about, and NUG had to talk about a lot as well. Um, yeah, uh, it's amazing how how uh, something that happened ten years ago, nearly a decade ago, came and haunted the, the current revolution that's going on. Even in PRMH, and you never get as much traction that it needs to get because of the issues that they have never talked about, or they have, uh, or some of the people that they have uh, on the team, such as Tata Wemia A or Dokimamamu. Uh, these people were known uh, genocide supporters. Right? They are supported in terms of narrative. It, it created this bad PR image uh, for the NUG as well. Uh, so it, 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 again, it, it's, it's something to think about how uh, the past can affect the present clearly in such a huge way. Uh, and I, I say this in, in, in full conscious support of NUG as well. Uh, I want them to succeed in everything that they do, and I'm, I'm a big supporter. I, I I talk about them all the time, but uh, the plight of minorities cannot be uh, a simple grazing grass matter that they just skip over, they just hop over. It's something that needs to be talked about, something that needs to be reckoned with. Uh, there needs to be an apology for all the minorities that were affected in these violence in the past, because at state level. People in power were responsible for these things. Yes. Right. Exactly. And I think one of the things that is also fascinating about the whole the whole issue from 2012 and then them them, I think they banned the internet in Rakhine State around 2019, right? They shut it down. Uh, way way before um, the internet shut down as of right now. Um, which is fascinating because um, you know, the I, I, from based on what I've heard and and who I've talked to, right, a lot of people didn't really believe the military were committing these atrocities, uh, right, against uh, the Rohingya. They were pre- the Rohingya Muslims, that is, and they were pretty pretty much committing ethnic cleansing, right? They were murdering, raping, torturing, uh, and just trying to get rid of them from that state. Uh, and that's just and and a lot of them were just. I guess fleeing to Bangladesh or India, right? Uh, if I'm, if I'm, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the fact that people didn't believe it, and then, you know, as of recently, right? Now, then the military actually showed their teeth, uh, quote unquote, uh, in, in committing acts of atrocities against protesters. Um, it just showed that you know, who is actually telling the truth, right? I, I just, I just don't understand why. People didn't believe it at that time, and maybe it's because of, like you said, the internet. But why was that? Why why didn't people believe that? And I, we can talk about the stories that you went through because people, I'm sure, people didn't believe believe it, right? Being in, in Yangon, hearing all these stories that the government or or military is doing whatsoever to the Rohingya. But 
what was that like being there and also, you know, trying to make people come to sense that this was actually happening? And the fact that some of these people now <laughs> may have realized like you were telling the truth, <laughs> uh, like what has that been like for you? What has that journey been like to like have people see the light or see that actual, those real, those stories were actually happening? Yeah, again, it's a very good question on point. Uh, and, and the internet shutdown in Rakhine State was actually one of the, the longest in the whole world. Um, I think Human Rights Watch have a report on it, and it, it's not only Rakhine State, it was also in Chin State as well, which is the neighboring state of the Rakhine State. Uh, these plights, um, so that I think you're going to have to go over to the podcast. He's going to talk about this as well. Uh, we actually have very similar views on this. Uh, the the people uh, living uh, on urban cities, right, living on mainland, uh, Rangoon, Mandalay, people who don't have to care about what's happening in the hilly regions in Kachin State or what's happening in, in the coastal region of Rakhine State does not care about these things because it simply doesn't affect them. And I mean, I'm speaking that as, as well because as a Rangoon resident, it didn't affect me that much physically. I knew about this. I, I raised awareness about this, but it was, it, it have no physical, I mean, I, I wasn't, I mean, even though I had both of my parents rooted culture in Rakhine State, you could say I'm a stakeholder, but was I affected directly? That would be, that would be a lie. I wasn't affected directly. So I think similar reactions happen to, to a lot of people living in urbanized cities as well. Simply, they were not stakeholders. And the propaganda machine of, of the, of the Tamador was pretty big. And, and you have to know at that time, it was supported by the Dosu government as well. They even released letters appropriating and, and approving the, the Tamador, the military's crackdown on, on the Yakai army, the Arakan army. So, it, it, I mean, it is appalling, right? This, this Nobel laureate sponsoring an attack on, on an armed resistance formed by the people, by the people of the Rakhine state. It's appalling and 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 under her watch the genocide happened too and the mass exodus and her party doesn't simply care like the she was in power and she didn't care so she was a big image in the country as well wherever her, uh, her opinions go people follow you know it, if dosu does something it's it's an act of uh, you could even say god right people look up to her in, in mainland, uh, especially in the Burmese areas. She was this politician with the shiny armor uh, who had just been released, won a lot of elections. She was this, um, what do you call it? The biblical parable of, of the, the, the sun returning in, in glorious shining light. And, and she's gonna save everyone. She's gonna save everyone, but it, it simply didn't matter for, for ethnic people. She, she sponsored this narrative that people should, uh, th that the ethnic armed organization, if they pursue the armed resistance, is going to be futile for all of them. And you have, to, you have to know, this went on for 60, 70 years, right? And she said that that was going to be futile during her administration. Um, that affected... Yeah, just to be clear, just, just, just to be clear, we're talking about... Aung San Suu Kyi. Yes, right? yes, we're talking about Aung San Suu Kyi. It's okay. it's unbelievable, right? She said, she said, armed struggle was futile if you pursue an armed resistance, and this has been going on 
uh, since the uh, uh, since after the independence. She said that if if Kachang Kiyan Rakhine people pursued armed resistance, it was going to be futile for them to have any political objectives because she's not going to negotiate with them. The things she said was along the line, right? Right. So the the whole public opinion it turns the wheel of public opinion in Myanmar it largely turns on what she think of these things as well. So I, I would say the effect of the brainwashed public and this politician that they so look up to, uh, appeasing to their populist side, it didn't really help the causes happening in the ethnic areas. Um, and it, it was ruthless. People were killed left and right in, right in Arkan State. There were, um, there were whole families being shelled, you know? Um, if you talk about the Rohingya, there were Rohingya villagers just tied up and killed. Riders have the whole report about that. There were uh, kids as young as 17, 16, killed and, and buried in graves. You know, everything, everything that you find nasty about humanity that was going on in there. And she simply didn't care. And it has so much, um, and it has so much effect on, on the public. Uh, opinion of these people as well, and and things happening in Makai State. So that would be my short answer. But we could go uh, more into that. But it would it would simply be uh, it would oh, simply yeah. be Dawson bashing at this I point. Mean, <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. I know. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm aware, right? Like, I think a lot of people aren't aware. Uh, okay, so a, f- a few points I want to call out because uh, you educated people pretty well in terms of. You know, the fact that things didn't happen when Aung San Suu Kyi was in power, um, a, lot of, a lot of the things are related to the political repression by the government, uh, Burmese government specifically. Uh, I think in 2015, they, the Rakhine National Party won a majority votes and they, they kept bringing in proposals, right, to the government and they were just rejected or not addressed by the NLD government, which is another issue. Um, and then what, around 2017, I think, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and Tamada, like also want they they want the Arakan state wanted to talk about the Rohingya persecution the Rakhine state and they just didn't want they turned down the request right so all this repression and and the fact that they didn't want to even talk about it was it's just an overall issue and if you can't talk about it or you can't even um, what's the word um, realize that that these people are suffering and you don't even want to make the effort you're just letting down you know the, the the minorities and also letting down the people that are actually actually hyper aware of what's happening in the country so that's that's actually really upsetting yes. um i mean on surface level people thought it was okay nothing was going on and stuff but um there were regular visits done by the the embassies different people were studying um uh, politics and IR people, ambassadors. They, they travel frequently to Rakhine State. People who work in NGOs, uh, such as Ne, they they travel to these areas. They they know what what goes on in in in, in the uh, the Rakhine State, the Rakhine State. So it was sort of a hidden. I mean, it, it was an open secret. You know, most of the people in mainland didn't give a, a damn about it, or they simply do not have the capacity to care, or they simply believed in the the propaganda propagated by by both the Tamado and the, the ruling NLD at that time. Um, so yeah, it's sad. different yeah, different proposals were uh, uh, proposed by the ANP and and uh, RNDP as well. But uh, you have to know some of the mainstream political party in our state are very far right. There there were even proposals of ridiculous as this. They were like, 
why don't you open the border from the Rakhine state for, for these people, people of a Muslim background, so that they could travel freely inland. So you would think, okay, that, that is a good faith argument made by some of the Rakhine politicians. You would think that. But that they, they make that argument because, well, because we don't want to take the burden of the Muslim population, us alone and alone. So you see, there's these a lot of bad faith uh, racially driven um, uh, propaganda, uh, both inside of the state and outside of the state as well. Uh, it, it definitely didn't bode well with with what happened. You know, the the the, the following uh, genocide as well, the mass exodus. It was a pretty bad, uh, nasty thing that that everyone had to uh, had to ponder on after it happened, and that was a big. There was a big leeway for for everyone to act on. That was a big time frame, but nobody chose to act on it because because uh, everybody was busy appeasing to to the populist side of the people. Uh, it's, it's a sad it's a sad uh, affairs. Yes. Yeah. So for you, right? And let's talk about how technology impacted that propaganda. Because as you know, as I mentioned earlier, the internet had opened up. Uh, the fact that there was probably fake stories, you know, occurring on Facebook that you briefly mentioned was also happening. Um, I remember the New York Times article that came out that this was happening um, around like, I guess, 2015, 2014. Uh, and I read about it. and I was like, why is no one really talking about this? Like, you know, the international, um, you know, realm, the states, we were infuriated, uh, obviously, because it's like human rights. But it was fascinating because when I read the article, um, it, it spoke to what you actually mentioned, right? The fact that some people didn't believe it. So for you, right, let's say you're in Rangoon and you you pull up maybe an article on your maybe phone and you're telling people, hey, this is happening. Why don't you believe it? Like, what was that like for people to look at it, look at the technology for your mobile app? Were they just like, I don't believe it, it's fake or... Like, what was that like for you? Because like you said, you had a lot of issues bringing it up with people and they didn't believe you. What was that like when and how did technology play a role in either making people believe it or just people just saying that that's fake news? Yeah, so uh, good point. Uh, um, before this thing, the the whole Rohingya stuff, that which blew up, like, there were um, various New York Times articles, articles and, and I think it was been mentioned in U.S. Congress as well uh, when they were grilling Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, um, it was brought up on different stages. Whenever Facebook was scrutinized after those events, Myanmar was the the political topic that they had to bring in, right? It was at every hearing that Facebook had to go to, uh, which is good. But before that, I mean, it it's amazing how a, a genocide transpired right in front of us using Facebook posts, right? So if I talk to a person, and I say, okay, these things are happening happening in, in Rakhine State. This, 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 this amount of people are killed. These villages have been looted, pillaged, and villages burned down. The first instinct was the Mujahideen post that they have seen from, from the Kakwe Uzijo Facebook, which is the uh, which is the Facebook page by the Tamadol. Yeah, they have later rebranded as Tamadol Dream and Pianjai, something like that, you know, the Tamadol True News. Uh, which is which is funny. Uh, the the military the military commander in chief office. So they did that page. It continuously spit out these images of all images from from different countries or, or not even related to Burma or some 
outlier image that that happened like a very long time ago some fake news you know they would they would put out these images on on facebook saying that oh look members of mujahideen holding uh holding a british army issue rifle uh trying to kill the rakhine villagers um or it could be an obscure image from tanzania nobody knew and uh, it in fact turned out to be images that were from different countries or not even related to the rohingya people so fake news was propagated by one of the top officers in the country and one uh, uh, later one there were there were allegation rape allegation that came in uh from the rohingya women right um different officers from different officials and officers from from the the burmese side the the, the suchi government went and visited them in 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 camps in different places and when the women talk about rapes you could see that even the translator shut them down you could you could look at the video and if you get a person who speak the rohingya language well they would tell you that, that the person is telling the lady not to speak about the rape or you could uh uh and and i don't know if you're aware of this jay but uh, the state consular office which is the office of dawson suchi have uploaded uh big red bull images of uh two words which is fake rape what really yes they have uploaded i i will send you the the screenshot just to uh, i mean just to get you on board with some of the facts but um they she have of her office have uploaded this uh picture of uh this picture of word art it's ba- very badly designed word art um uh, fake rape red bolded to and and following that was the pictures of the rohingya ladies uh who were accusing the tamil of raping the, raping them right so it's heartbreaking and this is coming from the office of the state councilor who have won a nobel peace prize uh just imagine the emotional damages it had on the rohingya people they could not they could not talk about this to anyone and since the office of the office of state councilor which is the most trusted office at that time have done that a lot of people believed her mainlands people of political of high political positions they all fell for it currently a person surgeon is uh, serving in nug dr wemya a i think he's a uh, minister of welfare or something like that He's currently serving in nug as well he have he have repeatedly said that there was no rape there was no rohingya as well there were only muslim in rakhine state so you know you you get a sense of what went on and why people believed that there was no room for uh philosophical uh soliloquy uh of oneself in in regards to these issues there was no room to discuss uh with oneself or talk about it with another person because one of the most trusted offices in the country is propagating these lies and the ladies who were raped and this is not the first time that they were raped the ladies who were raped had nowhere to go and these things are confirmed true after as after different reports i think it was in 2020 or or 2019 one reports of rakhine women not rohingya muslims but rakhine buddhist women being harassed by the tamadol the the military people came out and some of them i think was prosecuted under the uh, the, the the military laws or something like that so so these reports you could confirm them right even by proof of induction or, or or different processes as well uh, if they could do this to the majority buddhist population 
what makes them think that they couldn't do this to the Muslim population of the Rakhine State, the most vulnerable population, uh, not only in the country, but even in the region, you know? So, yeah, I, I definitely, I mean, even, even when I'm not angry and I'm, I'm in peace state of my peaceful state of mind, I definitely still blame the Dosu government for, for having perpetrated those stuff. Um, it definitely didn't help. It really expedited the, the process of, of state level persecution done by the, the military. It was, uh, this whole genocide, a lot of people were responsible. And I'm, I'm sad to say that uh, those people, some, some of them include really influential figures from NLD government, uh, which claim to be the party of democracy, human rights in Myanmar, the only party as such. So yeah, it, sad affairs again. <laughs> yeah. Does religion play a big part in politics and in Myanmar? Uh, what, what, what is that like? It is. Yeah. I mean, we have um, we have Dangan Ayaka, right? Which one of the, uh, the it, I mean, it, you could even say it's a band of monks which have powers and uh, uh, powers on policy level. They could mandate what Buddhist people could do, uh, couldn't do. They could mandate what the monks could do and couldn't do. Um, um, same with uh, same with different stuff. You know, Buddhist people. If you're a Buddhist, uh, you definitely certainly have more rights. Uh, afforded to you than than you being a Muslim or a Christian minority. Um, it definitely helps you win seats in election. And if you're a Bama Buddhist, that's a that's a lucky combo right there. I think um, I think uh, I've read uh, I've read a book about it. I forgot the name, but yeah, the, the author used that word "lucky combo." You know, so if you're if you're a Bama Buddhist, definitely is going to get you places, right? Uh, yeah, it's a big part of a uh, big part of uh, of Burmese politics, and also one of the reason why uh, NLD government at that time had to appeal to monks and 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 not go uh bash it crazy on on sorry sorry to use that word but bash it crazy on crazy on some of the nationalists right but uh, but kudos to kudos to them they did lock up Wiratu, who was the leading firebrand monk uh, they did try to lock up Wiratu, who was the leading firebrand um monk of anti anti-muslim hate at that time uh didn't work now i think he is freed again uh by the timidor um so yeah, it, it, you could say uh, the stuff that happened in Metila, some of the stuff that happened in Rakhine State was purely religiously motivated as well. Uh, so this this ambiguous idea of religion and identity, like ethnic identity in Myanmar, if you if you are a Muslim, you uh, I don't think many people will see you with your ethnicity. They will simply brand you a Muslim, like singular identity that summarizes your whole existence, and that make it easier for a lot of people to brand you as a, a to 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 brand you as someone who does not belong to uh, it makes it easier for them to persecute you on different levels uh and, and 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 for example the passport process if you are of the muslim background you have to stand in a different line so yeah you know it, it it's it's weird things that i've seen um the first time i mean the passport i think lasts for 10 years Second time I went and got get my passport uh, uh, renewed in, in Myanmar, I think it's twenty seventeen. Uh, I had to send a different line, right? And and me being an American student, went to different places. I was like, "This is apathetic. Like, you can't do this to people." 
And I, I'm simply appalled how people just go along with it. And it, it somehow also shows how much context I lack when it comes to this, this stuff, persecution like stuff that was, that was done to the Muslims. And, and I, I had to stand a different line. And it's, it's not a big thing. I wasn't, I mean, I mean, I wasn't a victim of genocide. I mean, I wasn't killed in the Rakhine state, but, but it still shows how much uh, uh, the, the Burmese Buddhist majority cared about segregating, going, going to a fine land to segregate these people based on identity, and which, which, in which includes the religious identity. Uh, if you're a Muslim, you simply call it Allah. There was no escaping of it. You can't explain to them if you're an indigenous Muslim, if you're a Muslim of an Indian background, they don't care. I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, for, for them, for, for people who care about these things, you're simply a kala. Yeah, everywhere you go, you'll be seen at, with those lands, through those lands, and it's, it's very sad. And this happened during the Dosu administration as well. This went on, the segregating stuff. Yeah, she didn't have full control over it, but uh, by more by means of moral support, she didn't say anything either. So yeah, it's a, a appalling stuff. That's really sad. And for for people in context, for you know, un unaware of the religion in the Rakhine state, and these are stats from like 2015. Sixty three percent are, are Buddhist, uh, and then thirty four percent are Islam Muslim. And then one yes. percent Christian. Yeah. So, and then the rest are others, right? So, it's just, yeah, Rakhine State. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, mm -hmm. It's just fascinating that, you know, they could get away with this, and the fact that people believe that like didn't believe it, and then, you know, just for now to see it as you know legitimate is is sad, um, per se, right? Because. Um, there is this issue of just misinformation through technology that seems to go through Myanmar way more often than other countries. And it possibly because of the underdevelopedness of a lot of the areas. Um, maybe it's because of just the people in power, but it's, it's, it's really upsetting. Um, I think one thing that we can definitely talk about and we can fast forward now from then to now is uh, maybe a couple of days ago, the shadow government uh, declared war against the Tamadol, right? Against the military that is in charge currently. So it's now an overall civil war. Um, I, I wanna get your thoughts on that, but more importantly, how, after, after what we discussed, right? With all the, um, you know, the segregation that happened, the, ostracization of not just Muslims, but it seems to be that Myanmar has been in this like weird realm of having issues with every area. I mean, it seems like the North has their issues with, you know, the, the Chinese Burmese as well, right? Um, and then you got the Rakhine state with the Rohingya. How do you think the shadow government is going to bring people together when it's got all these issues around Myanmar. I, I don't understand how they're going to unite when you still have all these ethnic issues, these religious issues um, that are occurring still. Uh, but it seems to be that the, you know, obviously the number one evil is, is the military right now, but I don't, I, I can't see 
uh, right now to see them unite under one government to fight off the military because they've, there's so much history there. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I would say NUG is definitely trying. Uh, they went to, I, I, I don't know if you know about it, but they went to a couple of meetings. It was some of the representatives from California. They, they were pressured on, on, uh, on Zoom call videos, video calls with uh, some of the representatives from, from California. They, they were told to appoint a Rohingya minister or, or somehow a Rohingya representative to, to, to remedy, to not even solve, to remedy some of the things that was done to those people in the past. Uh, somehow people of a Muslim background who could understand the context of being a Muslim uh, as well. And you have to understand, Dosu, Dr. Wimia A, who's also, uh, who was also a big propagandist on this Rohingya issue in the past, and Kodoki Mamamyo, who, who used to be a defense minister, but now she's an economist in, in NUG. She called the Rohingya people cockroaches. And she said, cleaning up cockroaches, why does it matter? You know, we had to do it anyway. So, yeah, these people are still in NUG as well. I mean, there's certainly, I, I would say there's certainly still a pushback on, on what's going on and how uh, on, on the level of the, the policy and uh, uh, policy that's being steered um, uh, by the NUG uh, in terms of the Rohingya issues. Uh, certainly have the lashback. And I think there's sort of an internal conflict as well. Uh, I think they have issued, uh, but recently there was this press conference with Fortify Rights. I think Manne was there too. Um, she, uh, I mean, they tried to to tell everyone that there was going to be repatriation, that NVC process was going to be NVC, which is a verification process, which was the issuance of a card to the Rohingya people. It, it, it's just faceless bureaucracy to bury Rohingya people in, in depths of paper, right? This repatriation thing have been going on for 20 years. So, so they promise, NUG promised that they're going to cancel these stuff. They're going to repatriate them as citizens. Uh, I don't know to which extent they're trying to play the international politics when they're trying to, uh, when they discuss about the Rohingya issues and when they try to make policies in regard to these things. It, they could be simply virtue signaling in order to gain political leverage as well. And as a person who has to intellectually discuss that, these things, we have to be honest, right? We have to look at them through different lenses. But they also appointed, I, I'm not sure, I, I forgot the name. And, and again, you could blame me. I, I am supposed to be updated. But I forgot the name of a, of a Rohingya brother who was appointed as an advisor to NUG. I think his name is Joe Monton, but don't don't take uh, don't uh, add me on that because uh, very ambiguous about the name. But yeah, he was appointed as advisor to the NUG. I know he was appointed. Someone was appointed as an advisor. Uh, he's of Rohingya background. He studied in the United States. Um, uh, heard he's a good guy. Um, so maybe there are some concrete stuff that they're doing, but it's. It's not going to be enough. These um, these uh, virtual uh, recognition or or you know uh, this this virtue signal. It's not going to be enough. There needs to be a concrete policy uh, in place that that needs to assure the Rohingya people that that the problems that they had with previous administration uh, uh, with the Tamadol for for longstanding sixty decade uh, six decade is not going to persist when they come back into the country after the revolution. Um, and UG have received a lot of moral support from the Rohingya people. Uh, this doesn't need to be, uh, uh, there, there 
this these things that Anuji talk about the uh, the Rohingya issues, they don't need to be a facade. You know, they don't need to be um, uh, to to gain political grounds, positive political grounds on international stage. It, they have to mean them, right? So yeah, that is a little bit of my expectation uh, when it comes to NUG and when I talk about the Rohingya issues. Um, I know a lot of people uh, working for NUG, which, uh, for example, Mr. Amul Me, uh, I think he's from Ministry of Human Rights. He's a really, really nice person. He he actually means it when he talk about the Rohingya issues, and I'm really glad that he's taking lead on this one. Um, I'm really glad that. Um, that his ministry came out and 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 tackled these issues, uh, and there was even talks about the National Apology Day for the the Rohingya genocide. So so good stuff going on, but uh, we still need to keep them in check and balances. Uh, it would be a little unfair to to put a lot of burden on them because they're they're an interim government with no no actual. I mean, they are a de facto government, right? So definitely don't want to go and put a lot of pressure on them, but you know, they need to do what they need to do. Um, I hope that they don't appeal to the populist side of the people again. They need to know that some of the things that they, they need to execute in terms of the Rakhine state uh, doesn't need to be supported by a lot of people. It just need to be right. Uh, it just need to be morally okay. Uh, and and a lot of people from uh, Rakhine State deserve that as well. Yes, I, I I don't know if I answered your question, but no, it it this is great. I think any way to educate anyone that's listening to this about Myanmar and the complications of the government um, in general, uh, in terms of also reparations to you know the Rohingya, is definitely welcomed. So I th- let's backtrack a little bit because I, I don't think people know that there is a shadow government and, and that was my bad. Um, so, uh, yeah, explain to me and explain to the viewers like how there is now another government, as we call it, shadow government. Uh, and wh- how did that come to be and how did they now plan to stage a civil war? Because I, I don't think people are aware that uh, they are aware that the military is in power, but they I, I'm not sure to the normal person listening to this that this government has now come together. Uh, I'm curious how they come together now and state have said we are now the shadow government and we are now declaring civil war. How did that come together? And what is that like currently? Is there any support from the public? How are your feelings about it? Like, what are your friends and family feeling about it? What was that like? Because as you know, the internet is still shut down and it's very hard to communicate with each other in different areas of Myanmar. What is that like now with this government coming together and trying to take down the Tamado military? Yeah, uh, so a little background, as you have said, February, I think 1st of February, 2021, was when there was a coup, the military, the Tamado, the long-standing military have claimed that there was uh, voter fraud and took over the, took, took over the country. In a happy, arrested all of the the uh, political representative, the the member of the parliaments, etc. Put Dosu in uh, Dosu in jail, right, uh, or prison, held her, uh, detained her. Uh, a lot of people were killed. Some of them were did, uh, abducted in in the mid- middle of the night, uh, and only the body returned. So, a lot of bad stuff in a short period of time. Some of the people that I personally knew died 
in the revolution. Um, and and this was when mass movement of people came together. Uh, and and the first, I think, the first uh, organization um, um, that sort of existed out of this this uh, usual conventional framework, as you could say, the the shadow government, is CRPH, right? Committee representing uh, Parliament Lido or something. Yeah. Uh, so CRPH uh, was actually a ban of like yeah committee representing Pidanzu Lido. So it was a ban of political uh, representative who won the the election before the Tamil took over. They came together. They had meetings. I think they canceled the the uh, 2008 constitution, and then NUG was formed, which is the the government the the government itself, and. Now um, the government take uh, and it is supported by majority of the people. I would say um, we don't have the, the the leading statistic, but it is supported by most of the people you you know. It's supported yeah. by most of the uh, ethnic minorities as well. Uh, I'm not talking about I'm I'm not talking about um, EAOs, which is the ethnic armed organizations. Uh, they have, I think, uh, they have, I think, set up different frameworks to communicate with NUG or CRPH to to do uh, to talk about uh, to talk about some of the issues and agendas that they want to discuss. If somehow NUG end up winning this revolution that they have put forward, and then PDF was formed, which was People Defense Forces. There are different People Defense Defense Forces in different parts of the region. Uh, it's very it's a very decentralized. Uh, uh, institution, military institution. Uh, they currently fight the urban warfare, uh, mostly on the losing side, I would say, uh, with uh, uh, with the Tamador. And in and as, as of current today, I think a lot of people died, or thousands of people have died, uh, including civilian protesters, students, uh, uh, medics. Um, and there were shocking videos that came up on internet where Tamador people are beating the medics to death. Um, I was told that even even somehow on some level, Islamic terrorists in the Middle East would not do that, and it's appalling. That's right? crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. They were beating the the the, the medics. Um, yeah, and and today I think it was today or yesterday I think as as of as speaking as of now they have burned uh, they have killed I think twenty something villagers uh, just because. They couldn't find anyone else. They just said, "Okay, these people are PDF, People's Defense Forces members. Let's kill them." And and there were images of their bodies burning on internet, and and and, and that happened like today, right? While we're talking right now, and it's it's sad. It's it's uh it's traumatic, right? Um, so I would say, and UG have to uh, have to have this mental strength as well while dealing with these maniacs. Uh, but on terms of people's support, a lot of people uh, morally and, and somehow even monetarily support NUG. They bought raffle tickets, they bought lotteries to, to, uh, to funnel money into and to CRPH and NUG to somehow keep them going, which is amazing as well. And even for a decentralized group like PDF, which is an arm, arm force for, for NUG, um, they do such an amazing job at urban warfare, right? Uh, uh, against the Tamador. Uh, kudos and props to them. It's led by student organization as well. This is the kind of movement that was needed a few decades ago, I would say. And and 
and most as most people would describe it as people who have joined the PDF uh, in the in the forest and jungle uh, to combat these stomatomaniacs, maniacs, they would say this is a do or die moment, right? And uh, it also makes me sad as well because I couldn't be there to to support them. I could only do so much with uh, with this moral and uh, and uh, support uh, using my voice or however I could. This is impressive uh, in order to spring out a revolution in, in a short period of few months. It's uh, it's definitely definitely something uh, shows something about the people of Myanmar as well. Their resilience and something. Uh, something should. I mean, it's it's definitely a telling story to to the Tamadol right um, that the people of Myanmar shouldn't be messed around with. These dictators, um, they, dictatorships never end well. Political power grabs, uh, it will never end well, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's the message that NUG and PDF is trying to give, and um, and and yeah, it's amazing to see how people support the organizations as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think the I think one of the things that we talk about a lot on Clubhouse is also the fact that, um, you know, most people uh, from different countries, probably Western countries, will always ask like, you know, don't don't you think you know you you can live with the government uh, or I mean the military? Uh, and there's I, I think you and I agree that the military just needs to go at this point, just based on the history, the acts of atrocities that they've committed that there is no winning resolution until they they're gone and it's it's just sad because i i think it's gonna be a long war for sure uh and i mean yes there there is stories of military defecting but it's kind of as most people have seen the military is pretty brutal in terms of tactics and what you just mentioned how they burn villagers uh right now which is is terrible, and you know, they they are what we should call them, and that that is terrorist in general, and they've been terrorizing Myanmar and all different parts of Myanmar, um, through violence and through war and bloodshed, and it's they they just need to go. I don't I don't see a solution without them not being there. That is so. Just do have to. Go. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Take take away the atrocities, the emotional pains, right? Let's take them away for the, for a moment. Uh, let's just pretend that they are emotive um, reactions, right? Even on political settings, Demador have broken many promises that they have made with EAOs, especially KIA and KNU. They have never kept their promises on political settings. They have always negotiated with bad faith. If there was a ceasefire going on in hilly regions, Kachin State, Kachin State, Shansi, etc., you can bet that you can actually bet money on that ceasefire that is going to be broken somehow, some way, by the Tamadol. Then this has happened for several decades. Many ethnic uh, minorities have learned, learned their lessons. This is the first time for many of the urban Rangunites and people people of Burmese uh, Buddhist background. But but uh, we as an ethnic person, ethnic minorities, we know that Tamado always negotiate in bad faith. That's why if we are being, and this is this is to all the people, uh, foreigners who ask me on Clubhouse, like if we are being put in a political setting with them, we can always expect a bad outcome. If you play, and it's as if in game theory as well, you know, computer science. If we play this game with the maniac, we'll always end up losing because 
you can say they are somehow short-sighted or they're smart. It, it could go both ways. But we always end up losing because we play this, we play this game with them. We, we are put in a setting where we have to negotiate with them, but they don't keep it because they have the political and the military leverage to not keep those promises. It's always a losing game for us. That's why it's not good for us to negotiate with them, you know. So, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. And I, this is why I always get a little bit upset and maybe frustrated when someone else comes from maybe the West and is like, yeah, like, you know, we need to go talk to the military or government and tell them to stand down. It's like talking is not going to do anything. Uh, I don't think Aishan doesn't know yeah. what to do either. Uh, aside from, you know, the people on the ground, which is listening, listening to them and just listening to the history for me, it's just got me fired up. The fact that uh, they just need to go at this yeah. point. Right. Um, you're, you're, they're reliving pretty much what from like 1960s to 2010. They, you guys are reliving it again ever since they came at, back into power pretty much. And a lot of the elderly know that that your parents probably yeah. know that too and it's just frustrating for them because they're just reliving history and for anyone that you know says like oh we, we can talk it out we can talk it through and you know have these policies that that's not the answer yes for, for me in general and that's not the answer for a lot of people I've in interviewed yes. as well right it's it's just they just need to go yeah definitely definitely um i agree with you um and, and, and this is not a short-sighted, I mean, we know there's going to be a lot of repercussions by the military. We know there's going to be fatalities on, on both sides as well. Um, despite knowing all of these, you know, a lot of people are still saying that military needs to go. It's because we know we have contextual evidence that these people do not negotiate well on political, uh, political settings. Uh, you can't imagine a King Arthur kind of roundtable with these people. They're maniacs. They need to go. Um, so yeah, um, uh, I would need. I mean, uh, I would need the international foreigners to trust uh, the Burmese people on this when they say that okay, the military needs to go. It's, yeah, it doesn't it didn't work out well for us for for the last few decades. So there's no no saying that okay, that negotiate with them is going to work out for you this time. It's it's simply a joke. Yeah, there's no negotiations, especially when they've been utilizing technology to, especially on the TikTok, right, where those military uh, men are just like using TikTok, just like, oh, we're just doing our job. Don't hate us. Uh, and they're murdering yeah. children. Yes. Uh, use <laughs> uh, villagers, you name it. And it's just that's a little bit two faced. Um, and I'll never understand that. And I, I think. Uh, people just need to really understand the Burmese community. I think this is one thing that I, I get triggered about as, as you as you as well, where they don't listen to the full stories and they just assume that they can bring in these dignitaries from you know whatever level of government or politics to really talk about the issues when you, if you don't stay or talk to the community and, and really sit with them for maybe a few maybe for a few months to get even context, historical context, like you're just gonna get the surface level answer from these dignitaries because they don't have any reference to what's actually been happening or they're not on the ground, right? It's it's better to actually listen to what's happening on the ground and listen to a lot of the historical context that goes into it. And that's I, I think that's why I actually asked you about 
the Rohingya because it's how the military and the government at that point treated ethnic minorities. And then the fact that, you know, there's still issues if even if this new government comes into play that may not even be solved, right? So I think people just need to wake up and really listen to these stories that they're unaware of because the internet, uh, you know, can only tell you maybe like 40 or 50% of what's actually happening in Myanmar. Uh, hashtag what's happening in Myanmar is very helpful, but it won't tell you the overall context of the actual stories that are actually happening and the historical uh, rele relevance that has gone into, you know, the Rohingya, the 1960s, the the riots uh, that happened in Rakhine or even um, Kachin. People don't know that until they actually talk to different people from different areas of Myanmar. And that's what frustrates me because technology is such a great, uh, you know, way to educate yourself, but it's also the worst way <laughs> to really understand what's actually happening uh, in a country that is pretty much has had issues for so long that people don't realize it, right? I, I think that's probably infuriating for you because we. I feel like when people ask us what's happening in Myanmar, we, we have to keep repeating ourselves and then they just don't get this deeper context of what why is this happening, right? It's always what's happening and are you okay? It's never like, why is this happening and how did it come into play first? And that's what frustrates me probably the most. Yeah, yeah. Also piggybacking on that fact as well, it comes down to this this performative uh, performative uh, uh, activism that somehow some people portray on social media as well. Uh, yes, just yes, of today, uh, uh, we did a room with Mane and, 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 and different uh, different people in Clubhouse. <clears throat> uh, it was about this new narrative article uh, of how an NUG minister, Dr. Sasa, so one of the leading figures, humanitarian figure, you could say, he went to this bomb training, right? He went to this bomb training. Uh, I don't know why he went He went to this training, uh, but uh, it didn't need to be a big deal. It, it didn't need to be something that blew up, right? Going to a training of uh, for, for an explosive while there's a revolution happening seems like it's pretty normal to me. It's, it's a pretty open secret that we're going to have an urban warfare on some level in the streets and in the cities. But uh, uh, but there's this Burmese-American uh, Burmese American <coughs> uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning um, journalist. She wrote about this. Uh, she wrote about this, this, and she wrote a pretty big slam piece. And uh, and again, I, I'm in no position, and no one is in any position to limit speech. And certainly not at this point. Never played out well for Burma as well. Um, uh, but at this time, when she write about this piece, and she write this as a Burmese American, and she was born in America as well, United States as well. Uh, it, it's not the same in Myanmar. It simply doesn't mean if you bash something, it's not going to get well. You know, that it simply doesn't work like that during the revolution. I am one of the biggest critique you will see of NUG. But some of the things that that put the performative activism that goes on, it's it's seriously dumb, right? It it's useless. It does it doesn't uh, it doesn't play as well on the image of of the, the revolution. Uh 
uh, I, I'm 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 very annoyed sometimes. <laughs> uh, but talking about you know privilege, like how some people doesn't understand us, like why we need these training, um, why we need to arm ourselves, why why is there an armed struggle going on in the country uh, currently as we speak? You know, some people just doesn't get the context. Um, and it's frustrating. So that's that's what I wanted to piggyback off your point, Jay. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other issue, like we haven't even gotten to the COVID issue, the fact that they are also like limiting oxygen to certain parts of, you know, areas where there's protests, right? They're not letting doctors treat uh, villagers. This is the, the military government not even servicing those people in need. And people don't understand the fact that um, it's like, why is the military not helping the people? It's like, there's there's obvious reasons why they're not helping the people, especially with the COVID. And it's like, yeah, it's like, this is pretty obvious. I'm pretty sure you're just, you just not been talking to the right people. So yeah, this fake activism really does annoy me. Um, and I, I'll never understand it. I guess, you know, the question that may come up is, as I'm interviewing you, it's like, how, how are you supporting you personally? And you don't have to obviously talk about specifically, but how are you best supporting um, Myanmar currently since you are in America? Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to publicly I mean, virtue signal about how, how, how I supported the people, but um, the only way I, 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 I could support them is in terms of uh, uh, playing a, a, a very small, minuscule role in advising some of the people. Uh, you know, lucky enough to advise some of the people who are very involved in the cause. Um, uh, I was lucky enough that they let me donate some of the some of the the funds that that I have uh, uh, to the causes uh, that's happening uh, in, in 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 Myanmar. Uh, um, also very lucky uh, that they somehow reach out to me in terms of some of the stuff uh, um, that, that happens and, and, and on policy level, how it plays out. And, and, and I'm very lucky to be involved in such a big group of people. I'm very lucky to be involved in such a minuscule element uh, while this whole thing plays out. Um, uh, the only support I could give them is uh, um, a purely... Um, um, uh, Somehow, sometime um, monetary support, sometime in terms of uh, of uh, uh, replicating and repeating their messages to to different people, on, either on Clubhouse, on social media, uh, people that I meet in campus, um, and and somehow being inv getting involved with some of the student groups in the United States. Uh, that, that's that's one way I support uh, the NUG and CRPH coalition. Uh, I could do more to to support them. I definitely uh, definitely plan to do more too. Um, it, it, this this whole this whole thing that they're going through themselves it, it, it makes me uh, very uh, very sad uh, because you know people who really want to do good for for the country it's just limited a lot by the the military stupid. Um, a political power grab, you know, it, it's it's very stupid. Uh, the country was on its way to become one of the largest economy in Asia. Now it's dirt poor again. You know, it is very easy to destroy what was built in in, in the past decade, right? Burmese people have tasted democracy 
for a decade, and it's not going to go well for the tomato at this time because after tasting a new sense of freedom, it's never easy to take away those rights again. So it's, it's uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, again, going back to the support, um, I work I work with some of the NGOs and some of the student groups. I would ask the audience to look at Global Movement for Myanmar Democracy. Uh, they do good work on on some of the policy stuff, uh, uh, advocacy and and storytelling in terms of the the Rohingya issues, the the Burmese issues, uh, the current coup. Uh, they do this whole social media movement. Uh, they have advocated sanctions. I know that they work with. Uh, 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 different people uh, uh, who are very influential, influential when it comes to, to, to Burmese affairs. Uh, so yeah, uh, a lot of people with good agencies and, and good contacts uh, coming together to uh, to do good. Yeah, so that's, that's a very small way of how I support this revolution. Uh, and of course, by enlarging the messages and by being angry on Clubhouse. <laughs> that's how we... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I think there are many ways to support. I think people just need to find those, you know, point in contacts to really reach out to. I think uh, Nin, the the humanitarian I interviewed recently, is also a very good person to reach out to. Um, uh, there, there is a guest that I am actually going to publish soon, Ma Lapai. I'm not sure if you know him. In uh, he's also a politician who was on the run uh, I knew and it. luckily he's yeah. safe from yeah he's i interviewed him maybe months ago he so became, uh, uh, he's also current, good to reach out to he became a current minister for nug as well yeah, yeah. which is great i i only have good things to say yeah. about him uh, based on what he said so he's a good yes. dude um yeah so there are definitely people that you can reach out to because i feel like i get that question a lot like what can I, what can I do? Can I do something through the internet? Obviously the internet is, you know, yes, posting stuff, the hashtag what's happening memoir is very good. Um, but there are people that you can reach out to. Um, you can possibly reach out to men as well if you want. Uh, but we can't really talk about, you know, the details because I think we don't want to put anyone in danger. Yes. Um, I mean, if you want to support the local PDF, uh, the, the, the arm resistance, etc. Uh, it is okay. I mean, it is okay to reach out to me. Uh, I, I will help you get in touch with, get you in touch with the ground people. Uh, but I'm, I'm not in any representative manner here. You know, I, I'm, I don't represent, I mean, I don't want to be in capacity to represent anyone uh, as of right now. Um, I could get, get you, uh, get anyone, uh, get, get in touch with people on the ground. Um, I mean, if they want to support monetarily or in terms of moral support as well, you know, um, uh, go do the social media thing, uh, spread the message, you know, talk about the atrocities that the middle have committed. Uh, and this plays perfectly well on, on policy level. If people seize the message, it gets, unlo- uh, it gets, it gets big. And, and once the message gets big, it gets traction. Uh, the social media effect is very well known. Uh, sign a petition, uh, uh, go to go find a student group, uh, uh, go to the hashtag. There are many different organizations working for these causes. There are many different petitions to different senators and representatives uh, working in the United States body of government in European Union as well. Uh, there are many different statements condemning the ASEAN. I don't think ASEAN have any shame left to be condemned, but uh, definitely any sort of uh, traction that, that you could give to them. Yeah, it's definitely well appreciated. Uh, it's 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 a good amount of criticism against ASEAN. I'll take it. 
any day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Min, I, I gotta say, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, one thing I, I will say after learning about your history, I see some parallels between you and your father, and I hope you do get into good trouble. That is not bad trouble. So <laughs> keep keep yeah. doing what you're doing, keep supporting, and keep uh, fighting a good fight, because I think we need that, and I think Myanmar needs that. So thank you for coming onto the show, spreading the history, the knowledge, and educating me and the viewers, because I think it's much needed, especially right now. Oh, thank you, Jay. Thank you for always standing with the people. Thank you for giving us a platform, not only on Clubhouse, but also on on the, the podcast platforms as well. You know, you doing what you're doing is already great, uh, but you already know you're the uh, honorary Burmese, and, you know, we really appreciate you sharing the space with us, you know, giving us space when, when it's needed, and not being an overwhelming uh, person, you know, not taking up, not taking up the the space to to uh, to talk about uh, issues, but rather letting us speak. You know, you, you do the great job uh, when it comes to to Myanmar. One of the the most appreciated foreigners in our group, and me and Koto and I think Mane also speak about this as well. Uh, very highly of you. You know, it's great work. Thank you. Uh, keep it up. Thank you so much, man. Uh, I hope to uh, talk to you soon. Let's let's have a clubhouse event soon. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. I will. Yes. All right, folks. Thank you for joining me on this episode. We'll see you soon. Take care.